whenever we approach this passage, I imagine many of us are very, very familiar with it. We read this year after year. And what can be difficult is whenever we have something like this that we have read year after year, the shock, the kind of the oomph of the passage is taken away from it. And we can begin to see this as a nice little story of Jesus riding into Jerusalem. And we can lose the the sheer wonderment at the message that Jesus is making whenever he does this. Jesus is being profoundly confrontational by the way he enters into Jerusalem and clears out the temple. He is declaring himself to be three very controversial things. And this morning what we're going to do is we're going to look at those three different things and then look at three different groups who reject different parts of uh, Jesus' identity. But as we read through this, we want to read through it in a way where we see where the shock that Jesus is wanting us to pick up on. The uh, academic uh, Price Reynolds from Duke University said that if 2,000 years of pious handling had not dimmed our understanding of the sto- that these stories demand, that this gospel would still be seen as the burning outrage it continues to be. It is either a work of madness or a blinding revelation. The acts it portrays, the claims it advances from each paragraph demand that we make a hard choice. If we take the gospel writers seriously, we have, finally to, we have to finally ask the question he thrusts so fragrantly upon us. Does Jesus bring us life-transforming truth? Or is this one gifted lunatic's tale of another lunatic wilder than he? This morning as you are sitting at home and hearing this passage, Jesus is confronting you with who he is. And in the words of the pastor, Tim Keller, he is saying, crown me or kill me, but I will not be liked. We cannot stay on the fence as we read through a passage like the triumphal entry. And it's because Jesus tries to show himself to be three things because this passage is filled with so much imagery. The first thing that he tries to show us of who he is, is a savior. If you'd been watching the event that day, you would have picked up on a huge amount of historical symmetry that's taking place. Um, In the year 164 BC, there had been a revolt that had taken place in Jerusalem. Uh, The Maccabean Revolt is what it's called. One of their leaders, Maccabeus, went into the temple and cleared it, gutting it out of all the Greek god and goddesses that had been placed in the temple. And after cleansing the temple, he then parades through the streets as the people shout Hosanna and we have palm branches. So whenever they would have been watching Jesus riding into the temple, waving palm branches or riding into Jerusalem, waving palm branches to then cleanse out the temple, automatically the people in their minds would have thought, our savior is here. He's come, he's going to liberate us and put everything right. And then there's even the titles that they give to Jesus. We read in other accounts that they pray as saying, Hosanna, which means Savior. The other thing that Jesus is showing himself to be here is a king. Whenever we read about Jesus riding in 
to Jerusalem on a donkey. This isn't the only time somebody rides into Jerusalem on a donkey in the Bible. Uh, In 1 Kings chapter 1, King Solomon has a problem in that he wants to try and pass on the kingship to his son Adonijah. And the way that he shows that Adonijah is now the king is he puts him on the king's mule and he walks into Jerusalem riding on the back of the king's mule as a way of showing your king is here. Follow him and adore him. And the other way that Jesus shows us he is king here is that in the ancient world, the only people who ride are leaders, are the elite, are the people who are trying to say, come and follow me. So as Jesus is riding into Jerusalem, he is really clearly showing the imagery that he is going to be a savior, that he's going to be a king, but also he is fulfilling prophecies that show he's declaring himself to be God. The Bible is packed full of promises that Jesus is now fulfilling. In Zechariah 9, uh, chapter 9, verse 9, we read of how the Messiah, the anointed one of God, who would be God himself, rides into Jerusalem riding not just a donkey, but the colt of a donkey, a young donkey. Later on in Zechariah chapters 14, verses 4 to 5, Zechariah says, whenever the day of the Lord's coming, whenever the day of the Lord appears, the Lord will descend. And where will he descend from? He will descend from the Mount of Olives. And where does Jesus descend from in his way into Jerusalem? He descends from the Mount of Olives. Whenever you wave palm branches, why wave palm branches? Have you ever thought that was really weird? Like, we don't begin ripping the branches off trees and waving them when people go through the streets of a town and we're having a celebration. The reason they wave the palm branches is because it connects with a prophecy in Isaiah chapter 55, where it says, whenever the Lord comes to Jerusalem, the very trees will clap their hands. And so as Jesus rides into Jerusalem, he is showing himself to be a savior who will cleanse the temple. He is showing himself to be a king who will lead the people. But most importantly, He is declaring himself to be God. That's why he looks over the city and weeps. For they did not know the day of God's visitation upon Jerusalem. That is who Jesus is showing himself to be. And if we accept anything short of that picture of God as Savior, King, and God, we are settling settling for a Jesus who is not a real Jesus, but one who is a figment of our own imagination. And we see whenever people are confronted with that high, bewildering view of Jesus, it's controversial and not everybody accepts it. So we're going to look at the three different groups who reject Jesus in some way, shape, or form because of who he's claiming to be. The first group who we see reject Jesus in this passage are the Pharisees. Whenever Jesus is riding into Jerusalem, the Pharisees call for Jesus to rebuke his disciples, to tell them to stop praising him. And he says that even if they did not praise him, the very rocks would cry out. So why are the Pharisees saying that? Who even are the Pharisees? We we read about the Pharisees so much in the Bible, but we maybe don't quite know who they are. Um, We don't really have an equivalent of what the Pharisees would be like today. Uh, The Pharisees were 
a group of people who had a very, very specific reading of the Old Testament religious laws. And as they read the Old Testament religious laws and read the Old Testament, and they looked at the society in Israel, they wanted to make the society in Israel follow their particular reading of the Old Testament laws. So they became something akin of a political lobbying group who were trying to convince the rulers and powers that be in Jerusalem to follow a very strict sense of these laws. Because for a Pharisee, what they would do is they would follow all these laws and all these extra biblical rules that aren't just in the Bible, but come from the oral tradition as well. And they would use that to justify themselves before God, to say, look at how great a person I am. And the issue they have is that Jesus doesn't quite fit in with that. Jesus' teaching, whenever he says, I have come to call the righteous, or I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance, or says, no one comes to the Father except through me, or whenever he says, woe to you Pharisees, and he calls them like whitewashed tombs, who on the outside give an external view of godliness, but inside they are dead. Whenever they are faced with Jesus, they realize that Jesus is not the leader and ruler that they would want. And so the people who really should have known Jesus was the Messiah can't bring themselves to accept him for who he really is. Have you ever thought it was really bizarre that a group like the Pharisees who knew the Old Testament incredibly well and were able to pick up on all the prophecies that are being fulfilled in Jesus, people who want to reform the worship of Israel and see Jesus wanting to do the same, people who are steeped in the history of Israel and can see that Jesus is truly the person who's fulfilling all the promises and claims that they have been longing to be fulfilled, why do they reject him? Why do they disagree with him? Why do they not like him? And it's because if Jesus is right, and he's who he claims to be, everything that he has taught along the way that contradicts them crushes how they view themselves before God. Because suddenly they have to see that they are sinners just like everybody else, and no different than the Israelites around them. It's a wee bit like if you've ever watched Les Miserables, and... Jean Valjean, who is the convict who uh, is fleeing from the stern police officer, Javert. And Javert sees himself as the upholder of the law, justice incarnate. You know, he is the man who will make sure everyone pays for what they have done. And at the end of the film, Javert has been captured by some revolutionaries and is tied up. And Jean Valjean, the convict whose life has been plagued by Javert for decades, Jean Valjean stands before Javert with a knife in his hand. What would you do? Maybe we would kill the person or get rid of the problem in our lives. But Jean Valjean cuts the ropes that are binding Javert and set him free. And Javert goes away crushed that the convict who he thought he was better than has shown him a forgiveness that he could never reciprocate. And he says, just before plunging into the river, saying, who is this man? What sort of devil is he to have caught me in a trap and have chose to let me go free? It was his hour at last to seal the fate, wipe up the past and watch me clean the slate. All it would have taken was a flick of his knife. Vengeance was his 
but he gave me back my life. Javert could not conceive that he was just as much a broken, sinful person as Jean Valjean. His entire life had been justifying he was better than the criminals he held to account. And when faced with the forgiveness that Jean Valjean gave him, he finds it crushing. And it's the same with the Pharisees. Faced with the teaching of Jesus that shows that they are just like everybody else, it's crushing because suddenly they can't look down on anybody else. You might be listening to this and thinking that, you know, we don't look down on anybody. You know, we're, we're one of the people who would have been there. We would have been celebrating Jesus riding into Jerusalem. We wouldn't have been like the Pharisees. But I wonder how many of you listening at home, as you hear or have heard sermons over this past year, and you've heard of maybe people saying people should do this or do that, have you thought, oh, so-and-so needs to hear that? If you've heard a sermon on lying, you've thought, oh, my friend needs to hear that. We always know other people need to have the Bible applied to them, but never ourselves. Why? Because in our hearts, we feel that we are somehow a little bit better than everybody else around us. And whenever we come before Jesus, we come before somebody who can maybe make us a little bit better, but we don't come before a savior who is willing to save us whenever we don't deserve it. Whenever Jesus presents himself as a savior, it requires us to humble ourselves and say, we cannot save ourselves. The Pharisees couldn't admit that. And so they were crushed by the teaching that he'd given and they cannot accept him as a savior. The other group that we see here are the religious leaders whenever Jesus goes into the temple. And they maybe would have been happy to say that Jesus was maybe there as some sort of savior or maybe happy to say that God is some sort of savior. But we see in their lives that they struggle to see that he can be a savior and a king. The religious leaders in around the temple, um, the scribes or, or the, the copiers of the laws, we read of it in the NIV, um, they were mainly concerned with controlling the religious kind of institution of the temple, the sacrifices that would take place, the money that would get offered. And whenever Jesus goes in and sees all the people selling in the temple courts, it's the religious leaders who have allowed those sellers to come in and to set up shop, as it were. And as they're trading, they're trading at a ridiculously high price because they know that people have traveled all the way to Jerusalem and so they need to have their money changed or they need to buy some animals to sacrifice. So they charge an extortionate price. It's almost like whenever you return a rental car to the airport and the closer you get to the airport, the higher and higher the price of fuel gets because people know you're gonna have to fuel up the tank. Maybe that's just a conspiracy that somebody's told me, but anecdotal evidence makes me think it's true. But these religious leaders see Jesus coming in and clearing out the temple. And as he does that, he is showing them that they have neglected their duties to direct and guide God's people. The temple represents the holiest place on earth because God is meant to dwell there. And yet, as you would walk into those temple courts, you would see trading and selling that is extortionate and taking the hand out of the poor. And Jesus is furious and he drives them out. And he calls them a den of robbers, which is an allusion to a prophecy from the prophet Jeremiah, who Jeremiah, whenever he is 
giving off about the religious leaders of his day just before they're taken off into the Babylonian exile. He calls them that saying that they are like a den of robbers. So Jesus is saying that the religious leaders of his time are just as bad as the religious leaders at the lowest point in Israel's history because they are manipulating God and using him for their own ends. They would have believed in God, no doubt. They would have probably read their Bibles a lot more than we read ours. And yet they remained thoroughly unchanged by it in their actions. It was all head knowledge, happy to have a God over them, happy to follow the rituals, happy to believe in some sort of a God, but they were unable to translate that into personal change in their daily lives. As one of the commentators, Joel Green, has said that they were legitimated by their exclusive capacity to handle holy paraphernalia and their authoritative position as legal scholars. They distanced themselves and even violated the needy, and they demonstrated antagonism to the ways of God that was surfacing in the ministry of Jesus and those who would follow him. And taking refuge in the temple, they used the abode of God to justify their practices. What he's getting at there is that these religious leaders were trying to say, well, we can't be all bad. Like, look at us. We're, we're in the temple. We go to temple. We perform sacrifices. We're doing everything we're meant to do. And yet their external practices were unable to change the, the internal nature of their hearts. They were happy to have a God who would bless them as a people. But they were unable to accept that the grace that God showed them might have cost something. They were unable to see that God demands some change, that he's not just a savior, that he's a king as well. That following God is not just getting your ticket punched, but rather it's realizing you were bought with a price. The German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, who wrote in the Second World War, but was uh, assassinated towards the end of the war because of his involvement in a plot to kill Hitler. He described this thing as being cheap grace, that kind of attitude. And he said that cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring any repentance of ourselves. It's baptism without church discipline. It's having communion without confession. It's absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is a grace without discipleship. It's grace without the cross, grace without Jesus, grace without Christ living incarnate. But costly grace, costly grace is the treasure hidden in a field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy with which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out an eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follow him. If we accept Jesus, not just as a savior, but as a king as well, it is a call for us to realize that he demands that we follow him. We not just accept the benefits he gives, but we call and we follow him as our Lord and our savior who can tell us what to do and give us commands to follow as our Lord and King. Jesus is a savior, he's a king, and he's a God. And the final group we see are those who reject him as God, and that's the crowd. We might think that the crowd don't reject him here. As, they go, as Jesus goes into Jerusalem, they're singing and waving palm branches. But we know how fleeting the celebrity uh, status that Jesus has is. Jerusalem would not have been a big city in those days. There would have been no doubt people who were crying Hosanna 
on Sunday who would be screaming for Jesus' blood on Friday evening. Why? Because they had a king and a savior who they thought was going to come and get rid of the Romans, establish the political status quo that they wanted, get rid of their, uh, the, the Roman Empire that invaded into Jerusalem. But they couldn't see that Jesus was doing something so much greater. They couldn't see that their greatest oppressor was not a Roman, but it was Satan in their hearts, their own sinful nature. And the enemy that they needed freed from was not one with a spear or a weapon, but it was sin and death itself. And they couldn't accept that Jesus was a king and a savior who was carrying out a call that only a God could do. And so they reject him on Friday. And Jesus confronts us with this full picture of who he is. Not just a savior, but as king and God as well. And he asks, will you crown me or will you kill me? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good news of Jesus. Lord, would we accept him as our king, our savior, but most of all our God. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.